0: Thanks for downloading this History Hub podcast. In this episode, a recording from the 2014 Tudor and Stuart Arling Conference, which was held at NUI Maynooth. The conference, now in its fourth year, was generously supported by the UCD School of History and Archives, UCD Research, Marsh's Library, Graduate Studies at NUI Maynooth, and the Department of History at NUI Maynooth. This podcast features a paper by Dr James O'Neill entitled Speedy Swords, Violence and Restraint During the Nine Years' War. 1593 to 1603. Now, the Nine Years' War has often been portrayed as a no holds barred conflict in which brutality was the norm. The orgy of bloodshed and cataclysmic famine in Ulster, which brought the war to its close, helped cement this image. That Queen Elizabeth and her advisors saw this as rebellion and not war demonstrated that, for the English, the actions of Hugh O'Neill and his allies placed them beyond prevailing customs of Justin and bellow. This would have allowed any and all actions to recover control of Ireland. However, close examination of details of the war shows that restraint was commonplace from its outset. This paper will look at the limitations of interpersonal violence and how these could change according to circumstance. Furthermore, strategic and operational restraint was exhibited by both belligerents in the war. Finally, comparisons with warfare in the continent will show that in many ways the conflict in Ireland exhibited greater, not less, levels of forbearance between enemies. Now, wars in Ireland generated a reputation in Europe as ones of uncommon savagery, with later English publications according the bulk of the brutality to the Irish. Contemporary texts that authored by John Derrick, Fiennes Morrison, and Edmund Spencer all portrayed the Irish, and the Irish wars as uncommonly barbaric and bloodthirsty. And while there were many horrendous acts perpetrated throughout the war, there were also instances of clemency and restraint on both sides. These can be found by examining military surrenders and the taking of prisoners of war, Furthermore, where outrages did occur, it's worthwhile exploring the causes and the extent to which these were due to local conditions or broader policies of either the Crown or Confederate leadership. Therefore, before addressing the events in Ireland, it's prudent to summarise the broadly accepted norms in Europe with regards to the legalities of declaring and waging war. These rules, for want of a better word, were divided into two strands, just at bellum, or the lawful initiation war, and just in bellow, the lawful conduct of war. Now, by the 16th century, the right to wage war was the sole prerogative of the sovereign. Acceptance of this was so total that the early modern works only sought to establish when sovereigns might legally initiate war. Particular attention was paid to the suppression of rebellion, which was seen as a subversion of the natural order of the sovereign and subjects. A more immediate influence in the Elizabethan court was the jurist Alberico Gentili, uh, who advised the Queen and her councillors on the legal conduct of war. In accordance with prevailing views, he believed rebels were beyond the laws of war relating to captivity or post and therefore exposed to any act of retribution. Unsurprisingly, when senior officials in Dublin used the term war and peace instead of rebellion when discussing O'Neill, the Queen was quick to reprimand them in the use of the word war instead of rebellion, as this suggested O'Neill and his allies were legitimate belligerents as opposed to recalcitrant subjects. Peace was made between sovereigns. Rebellious subjects could seek only mercy. But the war was not conducted in a moral vacuum, and throughout the Nine Years' War there appeared to have been accepted rules of behaviour conserving promises, oath, promises, oaths, guarantees of safe conduct, and flags of party. Agreements and temporary truces were made and kept between opposing officers, and surrenders of garrisons were negotiated in good faith, without fear of summary action or deceitfulness. Meetings were held, sometimes according to prescriptions set down beforehand, by which belligerents could confer in relative security without fear of attack. Occasionally, negotiations went spectacularly awry, such as Ormond's party with O'Mur in 1600. Uh, And we have seen him earlier on. uh, Poor old John Chichester, whose meeting with uh, James McSorley MacDonald went notoriously pear-shaped. And that tomb was slightly wrong. The wee figure of John Chichester. There was no head because it went to Tyrone in a barrel. (laughs) (laughs) But while these meetings ended in violence, it should not obscure the fact that there was an expectation of good faith and trust which enabled the encounters to take place in the first place. A good indicator of the attitude of belligerents could be discerned by their behaviour during negotiated surrenders of strongholds or the taking of captives in the field. In February 1594, the English captured Hugh Maguire's castle at Enniskillam, and after the castle surrendered, Captain John Dowdell executed 150 of the 200 inside, of which only 40 he considered the defenders. The disregard of the lives of prisoners was not limited to the junior officers, though. Lord Deputy Russell killed most of those taken alive during the capture of Cloughan Castle in 1597. The Crown Army had a poor record for offering quarter to the Irish taken at arms and from the earliest engagements of the war, English officers spurred few, if any. Sir Conyers Clifford was one of the few English commanders who recognised the utility of granting quarter and took many prisoners during his campaigns in Connacht. And he hoped that demonstrating the Queen's mercy would gain the loyalty of local chiefs, and regardless of the efficacy of Clifford's sensible approach, he was the exception to the norm. But the Crown's negative attitude to prisoners was not universal. The Spanish force in Conceal in 1601 received generous terms, but again, this may be because the Spanish combatants fell within the prescriptions of war as lawful, but the Irish did not. The English officer's habit of executing prisoners has tended to obscure the reality of the prob- that the probability of Irish surrenders being accepted increased as the war came closer to its conclusion. The long list of pardons issued by the Crown during the latter stages of the war suggested substantial numbers of Irish were receiving clemency, and Sir George Carew, secured a general pardon for the Irish in Munster at the start of 1601 and had requested 3,000 pardons by name from the Lord Deputy. But don't get me wrong, though this was indeed a softening – wouldn't take it to be much harder – of Crown policy, there were instances of prisoner executions right to the end of the war. The Irish Attitudes From the start of the war, the Confederate Irish forces showed a greater proclivity to taking prisoners than Crown troops. Despite Fines Morrison's claims that the Irish never spared captives, examination of actions throughout the war proved Martin's assertions to be false. A close interaction between Irish and old English families meant that individuals could be saved due to associations before the war. Joan Kelly, who was rescued by one of O'Neill's Scottish mercenaries at the Battle of the Forward of the Biscuits in 1594, was rescued uh, by one of O'Neill's Scottish mercenaries, oh, sorry, who she described as her gossip. And Sir Francis Shane was another who benefited from Irish acquaintances and taken captive. Others could be held purely on the basis of their value for prisoner exchange, and they were kept to serve as collateral for bargaining the release of captives in enemy hands. But, luckily enough, being bereft of friends in Irish ranks or value as a captive did not, necessarily, did not necessarily condemn less fortunate individuals to a Grizzly fate. The garrisons of both Blackwater forts were permitted to capitulate and leave their charges on terms in 1595 and 1598. And following the defeat at the Battle of the Yellow Ford in 1598, the shattered remnants of Marshal Henry Bagnell's army were besieged in Armagh. After three days, Bagnell's second-in-command, Thomas Moriah Wingfield, negotiated their retreat from Armagh, but what he left behind gives further insight to prevailing attitude. Roughly half the Crown's field army was killed on the way to resupply the Blackwater Fort. In in O'Cleary's Life of Reggie O'Donnell, he gruesomely recounted how the Irish returned to the battlefield, stripped the dead and behead the wounded, clearly indicating that the injured injured English soldiers received no quarter. But Sir James Perrault provided a different insight into the post-battle situation. He noted how 60 men who had been severely burned in an explosion of gunpowder during the battle were left at Armagh Abbey when the English army retreated to Newry. O'Neill had agreed that the English wounded would be cared for and returned to the peel when they were well enough to be moved. Many succumbed to their wounds and Peru condemned O'Neill, as several were taken from the Abbey and killed, but those who survived were conveyed to the peel as agreed. And This incident is revealing for several reasons. It demonstrated that O'Neill and his allies were willing not only to to offer quarter, but to provide medical aid to wounded English troops at a time when there was nothing compelling them to do so. Furthermore, it showed that despite accusations of barbarity and cruelty by Morrison, experienced English officers such as Sir Thomas Morae Wingfield and Captain Richard Cooney had enough confidence in O'Neill's promises to leave 60 incapacitated men in Irish custody. So, why is there a restraint, if it needs asking? One simple explanation is a fair reciprocal action. Brutality could be limited by a genuine fear of reciprocity by both belligerents, and this was seen when Captain Thomas Lee assaulted Art O'Toole in 1598. According to Charles Muldigy, Lee had O'Toole tied to a maypole, but was unable to get his men to abuse their captive. Lee's troops refused, citing that gratuitous cruelty could be dangerous to themselves. Consequently, Lee was alleged to have paid another, apparently a base-born man of Leicester, uh, to put O'Toole's eyes out with his thumbs, now, Montague was no friend to Lee, and the story may have been fabricated or embellished to Black and Lee's name, but reporting of the soldier's disinclination may have been a genuine representation of the common soldier's attitude to inordinate cruelty. The reluctance was not motivated by any sense of morality or squeamishness, but a fear of similar treatment if the positions became reversed in the future. This gives an indication to the parameters of violence of government forces. Wholesale butchery on the battlefield and the killing of civilians was permissible, but, at least for Lee's men torture or mutilation of the living was not. It appears that O'Neill and his allies recognised early in the war that the Crown army could be harmed more by desertion and surrenders than battle casualties. This was facilitated by offering liberal terms of surrender and providing generous support and even incentives to deserters from the Royal Army. Contrary to the clearly false allegation that they hated all English and killed all who fell under their power, O'Neill and his allies willingly accepted deserters from the Crown forces and for much of the war encouraged government soldiers to change sides. For many of these troops, especially the Irish, under English command, it was only a change of employer. Joining O'Neill was not the aim of the most English soldiers, though, whose primarily sole purpose was to escape the horrors of the war in Ireland, and to facilitate this, O'Neill established a system of transporting English deserters out of Ireland, and this was seen at the garrison in Derry, where troops began to desert to the Irish soon after landing in May 1600. In January of the next year, Captain Humphrey Willis reported that the men were deserting due to public proclamation by O'Neill, that they were receive safe conduct and aid in the form of food, money and transport to Scotland. This was corroborated by Thomas Walker, who described how deserters from the foil had passes from O'Donnell. There is no record of the numbers transported, but it's significant enough to have, to have Elizabeth's officers lobby James VI of Scotland to take action to stem the flow. And in January 1602, James VI issued a proclamation banning Scots from transporting English deserters and resettling them as tenants in Scotland. Furthermore, he demanded that all possible aid would be given to English officers who were now permitted to cross the border in search of uh, English fugitive English soldiers. But the process of repatriating English deserters was unlikely to be out of any sense of mercy or compassion, but more likely a simple cost-benefit analysis on the part of O'Neill. Put simply, it would cost less to transport men out of Ireland than pay for the material expended to kill them in a military engagement. If O'Neill wanted to take advantage of English soldiers' wish to return home in any means necessary, deserters had to believe they would be treated fairly and not executed once they were handed over their arms. Therefore, O'Neill's system of repatriating troops was to function, The Irish confederates could not engage in reciprocal acts of bloodletting in response to the Crown's draconian treatment of prisoners of war. The desertion of Crown troops was advantageous to O'Neill, but his deliberate leniency may have inhibited the development of reciprocal restraint when dealing with prisoners. However... Irish attitudes to prisoners changed markedly for the worse whenever their military fortunes deteriorated. And after the disaster at Conceal in 1601, whenever O'Neill or any of his dispersed detachments gained the advantage, they were more inclined to kill than capture. Now, warfare in Ireland is replete with examples of the mistreatment or direct victimisation of civilians. The civilians' position as the key means of production and therefore supply for armies meant that they frequently, if not always, became targets for the prosecution of war. The nine years' war culminated in the Scorched Earth policies of Mountjoy, and it is possible to infer that the destruction wrought in Ulster was a natural progression from the brutal repressions of Sir Humphrey Gilbert during the first Desmond Rebellion and Lord Grey in the second. The destruction and methods appear to be similar, but there was a break in continuity. War had raged in Ireland for seven years before the Crown adopted a systematic Scorched Earth policy, and this begs the question what was happening to civilians in the years fifteen ninety three to ninety nine? Now, the behaviour of O'Neill and his allies towards civilians varied from relatively benign, if somewhat firm, overlordship to brutally violent. But for much of the war, spoiling and raiding by the Irish in Ulster, the Midlands, and the Peel was rarely accompanied by killing of civilians. There were isolated instances which may have been committed due to local tensions or if there was an attempt to recover the prey. But civilian victimisation by the Confederates became more common only in the latter stages of the war. The first great outbreak of civilian victimisation did not occur until 1598 with the revolt in Munster but the outrages there were not committed by O'Neill's troops and had more to do with deep-rooted resentment associated with the Crown's suppression of the Desmond Revolt 15 years earlier. Before that, there were few cases of civilian flight from Confederate troops and between 1593 and 1598, O'Neill and his allies came to dominate large tracts of the countryside which included significant Old English and settler populations, such as were found in Le and Arge in Ulster and Leish and Offaly in Leinster. An economic imperative may be one reason why O'Neill allowed Loyalist farmers to remain in their land. The Irish war effort drew heavily upon the agricultural economy throughout Ireland. Empty lands producing nothing that can be taxed. Therefore, it was vital that productivity was not to be interrupted or suppressed. An indication of O'Neill's attitude came in a report from O'Connor's Slag in 1599. It suggested that O'Donnell had wanted to burn the entire pale all the way to Dublin, but O'Neill had refused to countenance such a move. O'Neill did not intend to destroy productivity or to drive farmers into destitution. Revenge or retribution appears to be the primary motivator for Irish attacks on civilian targets. Captain Richard Tyrrell, who has been portrayed as the epitome of martial ability in the Confederate Army, attacked civilians in Muscari in October 1602. and He believed that Cormac McDermott had betrayed the location of his camp to the Crown and in retaliation it is written, killed and hanged diverse poor men, women and children appertaining to Cormac. While Crown troops attacked civilians prior to 1600, it was after the appointment of Mountjoy and Carew, that the attacks on non-combatants intensified. This could be interpreted as a decision by the Crown to conclude the war by implementing a policy of extermination, but the reality was far more complex. Brutalisation and victimisation of civilians could occur regardless of the policies or religious ethnic bias of those in command. Local attacks on civilians can be caused by frustrations in military units fighting irregular wars who, denied any chance to elicit psychological solace from attacking real enemies, are likely to lash out at a perceived hostile civil population. Indeed, O'Neill's Fabian strategy and refusal to engage in what the Crown perceived as regular war may have precipitated the extreme action of the Crown in the latter stages of the war. O'Neill was content to allow English forces to wither at little cost to him in men or munitions, but modern studies have shown that this behaviour tends to be a precursor to officially sanctioned civilian victimisation, typically. The majority of civilian victimisation in war has occurred after a counterforce policy has failed to deliver victory. And the failure of Essex's 1599 campaign and following government response conforms to this pattern. Though it is true that civilian brutalisation increased, attitudes amongst the Crown's senior leaders were not uniformly hostile or committed to, to gratuitous slaughter of civilians. There were certainly some officers who displayed a preference for untrammeled aggression of the native Irish, such as the already mentioned Sir Arthur Chichester or uh, Sir Oliver Lambert, who even my joy uh, censured, he noted that it was great for destroying and killing the Irish, but this wasn't much help in pacification. Sir so George Carew was more pragmatic in his approach when it came to pacification. He used, his use of civilian victimisation was directed to achieve tangible military goals and not as a broad assault on the Irish population of Munster. This was not for moral reasons, but on practical grounds. Carew believed that extirpation was the surest method as opposed to banishment or pacification but it was also the most expensive and would take longest to effect. Ultimately, the lands recovered would not be worth the effort. Now, Lord Deputy Mountjoy has been accused of being an enthusiastic advocate of Scorched Earth policies, but while he saw the utility of spoilation as a weapon of war, some of his letters suggested that he was uncomfortable with its use. At no point did he declare that he preferred extirpation as a means to secure the North. On occasion, Mountjoy's letter suggested that he was distressed by the killing of civilians and in an attempt to provide some relief from the miseries inflicted upon the civilians of Tyrone, Mountjoy allowed refugees to cross south over the Blackwater, where it was hoped Henry and Con McShane would re-establish some level of agriculture. The suggestion that the Crown intended to prosecute a war with uncommon ferocity had been seen early in the war. And in 1595, Sir John Norris rejected the rumours raised by the Irish that the Queen wanted a war of conquest, noting that the rumour was being used as an instrument to encourage others to revolt. Much later, when referring to attacks on civilians, Sir George Carew opined that on utter extirpation I am sure was never harboured in Her Majesty's heart, nor advised by our council. Indeed, the Crown had deliberately limited its strategic options and demurred from uh, the option of scorched earth tactics for the first seven years of the war. Both the Crown and Irish Confederates had planned or used crop destruction for military purposes before 1600, but these were generally on a smaller scale and less systematic than the attacks launched by Major and his officers. On the continent, though, things could be really quite different. Compared to Philip, uh, compared to Philip II's attitude to rebellion, the response of the Crown appears positively restrained. Both England and Spain were confronted with rebellions but for the Spanish, terror was deployed as an initial response to revolt within the Low Countries whereas the English had been embroiled in a war in Ireland for seven years and suffered humiliating defeats and crushing costs in manpower and money before resorting to the draconian measures. In response to the rebellions in the Low Countries, Philip sent the Duke of Alba whose brutal tactics resulted in the destruction of Melklin, Zutphen, Narden, Harlem during which thousands of civilians were captured and troops executed. Alba counselled that the Dutch Revolt could only be put down with force without, what he said, mildness, negotiation or talks until everything has been flattened, then that is the right time for negotiation. Absolute charmer. Uh, the approach of Elizabeth to O'Neill and his allies was almost the reverse to Alba's. As the war escalated and O'Neill's involvement became apparent, the Crown engaged in a series of attempts at securing negotiated settlement. And it was only after the abject failure of Esk's hugely expensive campaign in 1599 that negotiations became less of an option and more focus put on direct military solution to the war. I'll conclude this talk by making it clear that I'm not suggesting that the war was peaceful or in any way dignified of her. Indeed, in Ireland there was an appalling and unprecedented level of suffering throughout the island. Uh, There was more than enough bloodshed to go around. Nor am I condoning brutality on the grounds of necessity, but merely attempting to understand the reasons behind it. This presentation merely serves to illustrate that the Nine Years' War was not an unbridled descent into barbarism. Some soldiers did behave appallingly, but others fought within accepted codes of behaviour truces and parties were respected and prisoners of war taken. Both sides took captives and executed prisoners, but this could depend on the context of the capture and the prevailing fortunes of those holding the prisoners. Though the customs of war provided no protection to rebels and even called for the harshest possible measures to be taken, the Crown's preferred option for most of the war was for a negotiated settlement, rather than a war of devastation, which stood in stark contrast to the ferocious Spanish campaigns in continental Europe. Thank you.